we go. Cut that thing on. First Corinthians chapter one, verses eighteen through thirty-one tonight. Encourage you when you find that to stand in our God's honor. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, is it reasonable to believe this message, the message of the cross? Uh, That's what the subject is tonight, is Christianity reasonable? I pray that you guide us as we look at your word, and we just need to hear from you, Lord. Any other message... Is not enough. So speak to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Story of a manager who had interview with three different prospects. First person came in and he sat with him. He talked with him. And then he said, I have an important question to ask you. And the man said, okay, what's the question? He said, what is two plus two? And the man looked kind of bewildered and said, four. That's right, I'll consider you for a second interview. The next person comes in, same thing occurs. He said, I have a very important question to ask you. What is two plus two? He said, well, there are different ways um, to answer that question. You could say um, one plus one plus one plus one equals four, which is the same as two plus two, or You could say 1.5 plus 2.5 equals 4. There are different ways to come up with this answer, but the answer is 4. He goes, wow. He says, you thought this through. He says, maybe I'll give you a second interview. And then the third guy came in. He talked to him, and he said, I have an important question to ask you. What is the answer to 2 plus 2? 
And a man came over close to him and whispered in a low voice, what do you want the answer to be? And he's the one that got the job. This is the difficulty that I'm afraid we often deal with. Is that people, when you ask them, is the gospel true? What is truth? It's what they want to hear. Not really a search for what is true, but what do I want it to be? What do I want the answer to be? In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, he said, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Greeks. But to us, it's the power of God, is the message. Um, the cross has been a stumbling block to many through the ages. Uh, an early historian by the name of Tactitus said that Christianity was a pernicious superstition. And I looked up that word pernicious because that's a big word that I don't really use much. And basically the word said is something that causes harm. So he's saying it's not just superstition, something that's made up, but it's something that actually is harmful to people. And, and that was the belief of his heart. Freud believed that religion in general and Christianity in particular were a psychotic illness. Well, you're out of your mind if you believe that stuff. And this is from Janet Reno, who was the attorney general under Bill Clinton. And she declared, A cultist is one who has a strong belief in the Bible and the second coming of Christ, who frequently attends Bible studies, who have a high level of financial giving to a Christian cause, who homeschools their children, who has accumulated survival foods, <laughs> and has a strong belief in the Second Amendment, and who distrusts big government. Any of these may qualify a person as a cultist. I guess I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> The point is that there is certainly a group of people out there who not merely disagree with the teaching of the gospel, but they're mad about it. There, there is an anger, and, and, and it is seen in their eyes as being harmful and destructive. And, you know, in verse 18, it tells us the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So a couple of things here on the outline. I'm look as we go down through here. The first one is, is Christianity reasonable? The stumbling block is people want control of their lives. The real question is not, is it true? The real question, does it stand up intellectually? The real question is, am I going to be able to keep control of my life? The real question is, can I call the shots? Can I be in control? My niece, when she was young, and we had a chance to share the gospel with her, it's hard to remember. I think she was 10 or 11. Maybe younger. Huh? Okay, she was old. Teenager. Okay. My brain's, uh, my memory's kind of, have to, that's, ex I'm not going to touch that, but. <laughs> anyway, I remember uh, Cindy talked to her one time, and it was very interesting because she was talking to her about the gospel. And my niece's answer was, I don't want anybody to be my boss. And see, the problem is, if people are honest, that answer will come up a lot more than, than you really will hear. People are not worried about, is it true? Is, is this something I can hang my hat on? Is it something that's real? What they're really worried about is, is this going to change my life? Is this going to make, am I going to have to make decisions I don't want to make? 
is God going to change my schedule and change my plans? And that is the issue. Uh, Look at verse 22. Jews demand miraculous signs. The Jews, that was the hang-up. Is is my life going to be changed? They're looking for miraculous signs. Remember, the Jews were the chosen people. They were the ones that God had called. And they had this, well, they had this special sense of, you know, we've been selected. And and so we know better than everybody else. and, and, And... there was this sense, it was okay as long as there were the miraculous signs. He fed the 5,000, he healed the sick, and, and, and people followed him. There were a group of, of, of Jews that were okay with that until it came to the point where he was captured, until it came to the point where he submitted himself to the authorities, where it came to the point where he went before a false court, when it came to the point where he was scourged and then ultimately crucified. And they did not want to follow that. You see, it was okay as long as there was healing. It was okay as long as there was obvious blessing. But when it came to the cross, when it came to a time of suffering, it was no longer okay. In John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said, In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. See, what makes the cross so painful is it says things don't always go the way I want. God may take me where I don't want to go, and I may have to suffer what I don't want to suffer. And Jesus himself did that, didn't he? I don't think Jesus looked forward to going to the cross. Otherwise, when he was in the garden and he was praying and he was struggling and the sweat was pouring forth from blood and he said, not my will, but your will be done. There was obviously a struggle there. We don't like the struggle. We want to call the shots, but the truth of the matter is, it's God's shots to call. I'm not in control. Uh, Second reason The world looks for an answer that allows them to be wise. Look what he says in verse 22. Greeks look for wisdom. They want to be able to understand the world on their terms, according to their perception, their understanding, what they think is right. And, 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 you know, we see this in this culture of of tolerance it's not what you believe, it's that you believe it with sincerity and you believe it with tolerance. Well, you can believe it sincere, with sincerity, but still be sincerely wrong. But um, there is an idea that God must be confined to how I see God and what I think of God. But the truth of the matter is, God's too big to put in our little boxes. Matter of fact, he says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's above us. We can't put God in a little box and understand everything about Him. Our understanding, our wisdom, our insight, it's small. Now, I've used it a lot, but I always uh, was entertained by Adrian Rogers as he talked about a time that he spoke to a guy um, that had visited their church who was brilliant. The guy's IQ was through the charts, and he had trouble with the gospel. Mainly, he didn't understand. He had some questions. And, you know, so Adrian listened to him. He didn't really have any answers. And so he finally said, okay, you're a smart guy. He said, do you think it would be very generous to say that you know half of everything there is to know in the world? And the guy said, boy, that would be very generous, yeah. It'd be generous if you said, I know half of everything there is to know in the world. He said, well, let's just presume God's in the other half that you don't know. 
God's above us, guys. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts than our thoughts. We don't understand Him totally. The whole idea of the gospel is really beyond comprehension. That God would lower Himself to humanity. That God would willingly suffer for us. That He would face rejection and He would face separation from His Father. And all of that pain, that's beyond understanding that He loves us that much. The wisdom of God is beyond our wisdom. Here's a passage out of Isaiah 59. Uh, It's kind of interesting because it talks about the Lord and how He takes justice in His righteousness to conquer. But interestingly enough, the way He ultimately did that was through the cross. The Scripture says, The Lord looked and was displeased. There was no justice He saw there was no one. He was appalled. There was no one intervened. So his own arm worked salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And all of this led him to not destroy the world, but to the cross. What a thought. The wisdom of God is beyond our wisdom. The Greek said, hey, this is foolishness because I just can't understand it. As you, it's interesting as you look at the Greek gods, uh, uh, some of these uh, Greek gods, Zeus, Poseidon, uh, Aphrodite, and other gods. But as you see these gods, it's amazing. In many ways, they get angry. They do foolish, childish, immature things. In other words, it appears that the Greeks, the gods they worship, they really made these gods in their image. They were really more like the people than the people called to be like the gods. Our call is not to make God in our image, not to understand God according to what we're like. Our call is to bow ourselves before God, to admit ourselves to Him, and to bring ourselves in alignment with Him To understand not according to what we know, but to base our trust on who He is and what He has revealed. And third one, last one here. The world is looking for an answer that gives them strength. Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. People don't want to be viewed as weak. We all want to come across as the one who is going to win. I get it. But the truth of the matter is, we're not going to get out of this place alive. We're not going to win unless we have the champion himself fighting for us to bring the victory, and that's Jesus Christ. Our strength is not very strong when it comes to eternity when it comes to the hope that we need. And there's some people who have a real problem with that. I don't want people calling me a sinner. I don't want people to see me as weak. I don't want, see, I don't want people to say that I've got a problem. Listen to this quote years ago from Billy Joel, the musician. I viewed the whole business as a lot of very enthralling hocus-pocus. There's a guy nailed to a cross and dripping blood And everyone's blaming themselves for that man's torment. But I said to myself, forget it. 
I had no hand in that evil. I have no original sin. There's no blood of any sacred martyr on my hands. I pass on all of this. Billy didn't like the idea of being responsible for Jesus going to a cross. But the issue ultimately is not so much that Billy Joel killed Jesus by his sins, but rather the message of the cross is that Billy Joel deserved to die for his sin and the only one holy enough, righteous enough, and able to pay for his sin did so. That's really the gospel. And that's where we all are. We want to be in control. We want to be wise. We want to be strong. But when all that is peeled away, all that's left is a people who are needy. All that's left is a people who need God. Sometime or another, we come to that conclusion. The only way for forgiveness, the only way to be with God forever, was one at Calvary. The cross. Foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. I close with this uh, illustration. Back over a century ago, there, there was a minister who worked in the slums of a large city. Uh, had a great work working with people who were just broken. People had trouble with drugs and alcohol. Yeah, they had trouble back then, too, with drugs and alcohol. People, just broken families, uh, homeless people. Made a real difference. A guy's name was Hughes. And uh, there was a atheist well-known of the day named Charles Bradlaw. Charles Bradlaw loved to ridicule preachers, and he was very eloquent as a debater. And he would debate, you know tear people to shreds because he had a real gift for speaking and for thinking and for debating. And so he challenged Hughes to a debate on Christianity. Is Christianity reasonable was the real basis of the debate. Um, Hughes decided to accept the challenge, but he had one stipulation <laughs> I love this. Listen, here's what he said. He said, I'll accept the challenge, but I only have one condition. I propose to you that we each bring some concrete evidences of the validity of our beliefs in the form of men and women who have been redeemed from the lives of sin and shame by the influence of our teaching. I will bring 100 such men and women, and I challenge you. To do the same, Charles Bradlow. If you cannot bring 100, Mr. Bradlow, to match my 100, I'll be satisfied if you bring 50 such men and women who will testify how their lives have been lifted from the shame and, and made better by the influence of your teachings. If you can't bring 50, then bring 20 people who will say, as my 100 will, that they have a great joy in a life of self-respect as a result of Christ. He says, if you cannot bring 20, I'll be satisfied if you bring 10. He says, Mr. Bradlaw, I challenge you to bring one. 
Just one man or woman who will make such a testimony regarding the uplifting of your atheistic teachings that their lives have been made whole through your atheistic teaching. And Brad Law withdrew the challenge. Why? Because Jesus changes people. Jesus forgives. Jesus does what we can't do. Is Christianity reasonable? <laughs> yeah, when you know Him. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank You for Your Word. We want to be in control. We want to be wise. We want to be strong. What's interesting is there is strength, but it's found in a place at first that appears as weakness. The cross. There... Strength was really shown. A strength that provides real hope, real life, more than our intellectual abilities, more than our problem-solving skills to control situations, more than our weak strength is the cross. And Father, we just proclaim to you that our desire is to preach Jesus and Him crucified. The one who is now resurrected and is our hope. (sighs) Father, we need you and so does this world. May our lives stand upon that great truth. And I pray now as we stand and as we sing, may you call us to follow you. I don't know exactly what that entails. Maybe one needs to come. Maybe to trust you for the first time as Savior and Lord. Maybe to say, I want to walk with the Lord and I haven't been lately and it's time it's time to come back you know Lord the invitation's open there Father maybe it's just come to the altar to pour out the heart and pray I don't know but Lord we always want a time of response and invitation to be a time that people are welcome to come to you because you're the kind of God that receives you don't reject You want us just to be honest, to come clean and to come before you to find mercy and go your direction. That's what it's about. So I pray in this time of response, that's what happens among us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.